Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Medical Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. And I'm Dr. Phil Chan. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Chan, it's great to be with you again today. We have a fun topic today. We're going to be talking about lead, the heavy metal. It's been heavy in history. It's heavy here. It's still a problem. It's a big public health problem. So, Dr. Chan, I'm interested in talking about lead today. What is your interest level in talking about lead today? I'm just curious. Where are you with lead? I'm very interested. In fact, it's one of those topics that I don't know much about. Myself as an adult physician, I don't deal with a lot of lead patients who have problems with lead, though I, of course, have kids and we want to do everything we can to keep our kids safe. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, when I'm not working at the Department of Health, I am a pediatrician. And so I've really grown up with lead in my professional career. You know, it's something we deal with every day. So we're going to be talking today to Cindy Joe and Bianca, a little bit about lead and how to get rid of it, what it is, why we care about it. Why don't we start first, though, with with people just introducing themselves. So let's just start with Cindy, Joe and Bianca. Can you just briefly tell us who you are? Hi, I'm Cindy Singleton. I have a long history dealing with lead as uh, supervising a local agency lead center. Now I'm at the state, at the Department of Health, as the Lead Hazard Mitigation Program Coordinator. Hi, I'm Bianca Polo-Castro. I'm the Director of Planning and Development for the City of Winsocket. Um, much like Cindy, I have a long history working with lead in the state, starting in 2008 when I oversaw the Northern Rhode Island Lead Center and the Lead Remediation Program as a subrecipient of RI Housing. Um, I then left and became a consultant to the City of Winsocket. And in 2019, I had worked with the city, designed their lead hazard program, and write their grant to the Housing and Urban Development. Fast forward to early 2021, where I stepped into the role as the Director of Planning. And hi, everybody. I'm Joseph Ferry. I am the Lead Hazard Reduction Program Manager for the City of Socket. I've been with the city about five years now. I started as a housing inspector, so I was on the uh, inspection side for quite a while. Um, got, you know, some experience dealing with the, the lead hazards that we do have in the city, and now I run the uh, lead program for the city. Wonderful. I want to thank all three of you for joining us. I was just saying before that we've never had three people join us, but we're very excited to tap into all the wealth and expertise here. Uh, Let's start maybe with Joseph or Bianca. Uh, Talk to us a little bit first about about why lead is important. Why do we care? What is it? I mean, just sort of the basics. What, What is it? Why is it? Why do we care? Absolutely. So, so lead, it's a, it's a metal. Um, It's something that's always been used in, in a lot of products for pretty much as long as, you know, people have been around it, you know, they've used it in medicines, they've used it in a lot of product. It really just made a better product. Uh, A lot of times it created, you know, the product to be more durable, sustainable, it would last longer. It was, you know, lead is able to be as a particle, it's able to be shaped. So they're able to do a lot more with it. Um, you know, you can fast forward it into the 1970s where they were still using lead. Uh, it's in, it was in gasoline, paint all the way through that time. Um, in paint, it made it to be durable out in the weather. It created more popping colors. So everybody wanted it. It was considered to be the premier product. Um, so really, you're going to see it everywhere. Like uh, you see unleaded gasoline. Um, we Now we see that. It was always leaded prior to that. So you know, it's been around for a long time until the 70s, really 1978, where it was starting to be banned from a lot of these products. So that's where we see lead. I think there's two things to point out about lead that most people don't realize. One, as a metal-based product, even as a powder, it doesn't ever disappear completely. It can only be removed or encapsulated. It doesn't go away. And the second is to remember is that lead is sweet. And that's really important when it comes to kids and pets, because what do toddlers like to do? 
They like to gnaw on windowsills. What do pets like? Pet, pets like sweet stuff. I mean, that's very interesting. You know, and I, you know, I think you, it's funny. You guys remind me, like I, I'm old. And when I grew up as a kid, you drive by gas stations. They had one price for lead and one price for unleaded gas. So I re- I'm old enough to remember when there was leaded gas and unleaded gas. And it's interesting to me, like it was just so much part of our culture. And I, I mean, I'm, it's great to learn about why it's so much part of our culture. But like when I think about pipes at homes, like this comes up from time to time. So why is lead still in pipes and homes? And, and why is that important? Joe, can you give me some thoughts on that? Sure. So it was always used, um, you know, say 100 years ago as the pipe of choice. Most of the pipes were lead because they could shape the lead. Like I said before, it wasn't just a um, rigid pipe. You could shape it. It was resistant to pinholes. So if, you know, there was a pinhole, it would close itself. Uh, They could shape it around. It was always seen as such a durable pipe, and that's why they used it. But what happened was over time is that the lead particles from that pipe, they would, you know, deteriorate and, and get down into the water. Um, you know, the same way in unleaded gasoline, like Bianca said before, once it's put out into the environment, lead is always going to be there. It's never going to go away. So you can imagine driving a car and those particles are coming out the back of the car and then they're going to eventually settle onto the ground. You know, it might rain. It's going to wash them into the to the drainage and then it's going to get back into the water that way. So that's um, that's a little bit more history on it. Yeah, wonderful. And I think one of the questions, too, is that we're always concerned, of course, about the impacts of lead poisoning on uh, on children's health. So uh, we know that kids get screened for lead, usually at their one-year checkup, and again, before they turn three. But when we think about kids and potential lead poisoning, what are we looking for? What are the symptoms? What do we, what do we see? Cindy, why don't you take that one? First, I would like to say, well visits, well visits, well visits. Keep your child's well visits. If you don't feel comfortable going into your doctor's office, call them in advance, see what their sanitation practices are, uh, see what their policies are. You may be only allowed to take one child at a time. Even a small amount has a negative effect on a child's development. This can lead to serious outcomes like learning disabilities, loss of IQ points, and reduced attention span. If your child is found to be a five or higher, you might want to contact early intervention they would be a great resource for families, and they are at kids.ri.gov. Yeah, you know, it's Cindy, I was just, you know, I'm thinking about lead poisoning, and it's interesting you bring up that number five. So a blood lead level of five or higher, it's abnormal, and that's something that requires us to at least start thinking about why do we, how do we mitigate this? How do we solve that? But it kind of begs an interesting question. Like, you know, when we think about how you detect lead in a child, you've got to do a blood test. It's a screening test. In other words, what typically happens in a one-year check, some other checkups is there's a little stick of blood and we get to drop blood and we check it at the lab to see if there's lead. But I know in Rhode Island, our rates declined in 2020 as far as screening tests, yet the number of kids who tested higher than five increased. You know, any, any thoughts on why that was the case? My knee-jerk reaction is two possible scenarios. Parents were just fearful of exposing their children to the virus. Uh, you know, avoiding keeping their children's well visits, which caused the testing rate to plummet. And families spent an increased amount of time in their homes sheltering in place. I mean, when we look at the data, there was a 24, 24% decrease in testing kids. However, there was a 22% increase in the number of lead, new lead poisoning cases, even though less kids got tested. Our instance rate has skyrocketed by 2.5% 2.5%, 2.5% since 
when we compare 2019 to 2020. We could draw an association between children spending a prolonged period in unhealthy housing environments and an increased risk of lead exposure and poisoning. Thank you, Cindy. And I think one of the next questions, of course, is lead poisoning is 100% preventable. How do we prevent it? So it goes right back to those well visits. <laughs> Have your doctor routinely, routine, routinely take your child's lead test. Um, have your home inspected by a licensed lead professional. The list can be found on RIDO's website. If you're renting, ask for a copy of the most recent lead inspection report for your rental unit. Yeah, thank you, Cindy. So Bianca, I just want to ask this question of you. So, you know, it's interesting. Like, I think one of the concepts that's really important is lead is invisible. It's small. It's really hard. It's an element. It's going to be hard to destroy it. You know, you, if you're washing it away, you're washing it away somewhere else. Um, you know, so, but it really thinks about our homes. Like one of the things I think we need to get back to is we live in our homes. As Cindy said, we spend a lot of time in our homes. So can you give me an idea in Rhode Island in particular about how many homes in Rhode Island are affected by this? And I mean, you know, we're, Rhode Island's been here since the 1600s. My goodness, you know, I mean, they didn't land at Plymouth Rock in Rhode Island, but they, they found us quickly, right? So you see a lot of our towns have been settled since the late 1600s. Give me an idea about our housing stock and what it looks like in our state here. Sure. So in Rhode Island, we have over 80% of our housing stock. It was built pre-1978. 1978 was when the federal guidance went into effect, eliminating lead-based paint from products. Not necessarily lead pipes, just the paint. Then, of course, you have an additional thing where in cities like Winsocket, Pawtucket, Providence, Central Falls, that were historic mill cities that had very dense housing stock, a large percentage of our housing stock was built prior to 1950. So Cindy and I both come from the non-clinical side doctors of addressing social determinants of health around healthy housing. And so it's not just the lead issues that we're also addressing. We're looking at lead and asthma clusters because in addition to lead pipe or lead paint, they were also using asbestos-based tiles. And as, of course, as you both know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, in urban core cities where there are increase of pests and dense housing, there are increased asthmas. So often when we look at lead, we look at it as not siloed, but it's part of what do we need to do for the whole kit and caboodle to make it a healthy home. Yeah, so 1978, you mentioned that was actually the year I was born. Sounds like really a landmark year for, for, for many reasons. Uh, but let me let me ask you this, and Cindy, you mentioned this, but maybe uh, Joseph, you could tackle this question in terms of uh, house inspections, home inspections for lead paint. Is that how does that work? Is that something you want to do when buying a house? If I have a concern right now, if I've lived in my home for ten years, is there who should I call? How does how do inspections work for this? Yeah, I mean, you know, like you guys mentioned before, it's something that people don't think about because it is an invisible threat. Uh, you're not really. It, thinking about it. I mean, you see some dust on the ground, you're not going to think it's lead. But if your house was built prior to 1978, it's very possible that it is. So, you know, in Rhode Island, it needs to be encapsulated, the lead. Um, so what you would do, uh, there's there's various programs out there, but there's also what they're, they're called lead uh, certified contractors. And, and these contractors, um, there's somebody that can be contracted out through either yourself or through, you know, one of our programs that that person could assess the fact that there is lead in the home and then rectify that problem. What we also have is some someone in a position called a lead risk assessor. They would actually come out and do a risk assessment of the property and determine if there is lead in the property. And if there is, 
it could they would create a scope of work and what the lead uh, lead certified contractor could you know could do to to rectify the issue. There are resources in which you could find this. And I just want to clarify something really quickly because we keep talking about lead being invisible. And while that's absolutely true, there are certain signs of lead in your home that you should be aware of. So if you are removing paint, especially from wood or windowsills, and it's stretchy, chances are that's lead paint. If Mm. you're removing um, lead paint from outside your house and it easily chips off, it's a good chance it's lead. And then if you have the old, remember the drawstring pull windows in your home? that mm, are wood framed. Do remember those. And you have not recently painted them, chances are they're lead. And by the way, those three things I mentioned are the most common um, causes of lead poisoning in children and in your animals separate from your water pipes. And I think so, for your prior point, Bianca, you mentioned you could also taste it and it tastes sweet. We probably wouldn't recommend that, but that was one thing I've learned today. Sorry, Dr. McDonald, I interrupted you. Go ahead. I didn't know lead was sweet either, so I counted that as a new thing either. I didn't realize how much older I was than you either. So it's always good when a podcast reminds me how old I am. Anyways, you know, it's interesting. You know, one of the things you remind me of, though, Bianca, I used to be in the Navy. And I remember walking through an old abandoned Navy hospital and just seeing large swaths of peeled paint, you know, and just you could just see just sheets of it. And I think it really underscores that it really was commonplace for lead to be used in our culture, just commonplace. And just, you know, we're living with the past and it's really about protecting our future. And so I kind of want to ask this question of you, Joe and Bianca. So do-it-yourself projects became really popular during COVID-19. Quite frankly, a lot of us were doing some home improvements during the pandemic. I was one of them where you know, it just seemed like there was a contractor in the house every month doing something because um, we really were upgrading our house. And some of those projects I did myself too, but why not just chip paint as a do-it-yourself project? Joe and Bianca, any thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. I, I can get into that first. Um, so as Bianca said, what we want to look for is chipping and peeling paint all the time. Um, second, where you really always want to look is in areas of friction. So these are the important places where you're closing windows, where you're closing doors, because even though the, the property could be lead safe at a certain time, that means that it could just be encapsulated with a new paint that's not lead based. But once you go underneath that where something's causing friction, you can expose that lead once again. So in window wells, it, you know, in doorways. So what we always want to make sure we're doing is not just dusting, because what we're going to do is spread that dust around. Right. Because the lead never it's never going to go away and you're just going to move it. You're going to disrupt it and it's going to go in the air. We always want to make sure we're wet clean in these areas because then we can dispose of the lead. A HEPA vac is obviously is a great tool. Not a lot of houses holes have them, but the a HEPA filter will actually suck up those lead particles and, and get them out of the home. Um, there's something called de-lead wipes. Uh, these are a nice wet wipe again that are going to take the the lead away rather than just spread it around. We could also use KN95 masks, similar to the masks that we were wearing for COVID-19. So that's something that, you know, can protect you from breathing that stuff in. But again, what we want to make sure we're doing, if we're doing DIY projects, is we want to make sure we're not disrupting the lead. We don't want to spread the particles around. Uh, Just a quick story, like even if you have a cat and it's laying in the window well, for example, and there's all lead dust in there. And then that cat can, you know, get up and go lay on your bed. And now it's got all dust all over its side and it can, you know, spread all over that comforter. So pregnant and parenting women obviously can get lead poisoned as well and pass that poisoning on to their unborn child. We also know that lead contractors have to get tested and have blood work done every three to six months because they can become lead poisoned. 
and we don't know what the long-term impacts on adults are with lead poisoning. Um, you know, and I think that one thing that programs like our program does, it's very beneficial, but I also have to give a shout out to the state lead centers that cover the entire state of Rhode Island. The case management support that they provide if your child does become lead poisoned is key. I, Cindy and I could probably talk about this quite a bit. You know, sometimes you don't know where the lead poisoning is com coming from. It's not obvious. We had a client who the child was lead poisoning. The house was built after 1978. The lead risk assessors came out and did swipes. It was, we could not find the lead in the house. And then our case manager went out and was talking with the woman's grandmother and she's holding the toddler on her lap and he's gnawing, teething on her bracelets. Her bracelets were produced in another country and the lacquer they used had lead in it. And he was always with his grandmother and always gnawing on the bracelets. And that, and we can we, we're like, can we swipe those? And sure enough, they were filled with lead paint. Mm, that's such an, I mean, that's such a real life example. That's so interesting to me because you can just picture, I can picture in my mind, yeah. well, eight month old or toddler gumming on a little bracelet because, you know, Kids teeth on things. They, they go in that direction there. You mentioned case management follow-up. Uh, Cindy or, or Bianca, tell me more. What does case management follow-up look like? Sure. So our state is divided in regions, and there are local agency-led centers. Um, there's a few through the community action programs that both Bianca and I have uh, assisted with that the case manager goes out to the family um, when it's not COVID time, and does a home assessment, goes over nutrition, talks about risks, talks about immediate interim uh, guidance that a parent can do. I mean, this kind of conversation went a little negative nilly, but I do recommend if parents do see chip and peeling paint, they go ahead and duct tape it up, put contact paper on it, um, or maybe move heavy furniture in front of it so the child uh, doesn't go around it. If you have anything to add, Bianca, go ahead. Okay. And the case management offered from the lead center is yes. different from the residential education offered as part of the lead hazard reduction programs, which are throughout the state of Rhode Island in Providence um, and in Winsocket directly. And then RI housing handles the state of Rhode Island as a whole if you don't if your municipality does not have access to that funds. And what they do is we actually go in and work with them to understand how to do the repair work, get the repair work done, where we do not provide that case management piece of it. So that's why we work part and parcel with the lead center. Yeah, well, thank you all. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask about this uh, question just because it's sort of the biggest story of our last decade, at least that I remember, uh, regarding lead. I appreciate any comments on this, but I'm reminded as we're talking about the Flint water crisis, right, that was happened back in 2014 and a few years thereafter. Drinking water for the city of Flint, Michigan uh, was contaminated with lead. And uh, from my understanding, thousands and thousands of children were exposed to, to drinking water with high levels of lead. What was uh, what happened there? Is that something that we should be concerned about in Rhode Island or any comments about that? Well, uh, we definitely should be uh, concerned when the water level uh, is against the recommended um, lead level, parts per billion, I think it is. Um, again, lead poisoning is silent. It's not detected easily. Parents need to get their children tested. I'm not sure what kind of universal law they have in Michigan, but he, not every state 
is um, has the test, the screening required? In our state, we do. So I think that we would have detected a problem in a short interim of time because we would have seen a rash of positives in our children when they were tested. And just to build on what Cindy said, from a municipal standpoint, there's three things that you have to look at. One is privatization of water services. Is the municipality handling the water service like we do here in Winsocket or in the city of Providence with Citroen Reservoir and we have reservoir number three in North Smithfield? Or is it a outside company who is handling the water services and therefore are they doing the adequate testing and due diligence required of them? Then when you think of water pipes, there's the part that the municipality is responsible for, and then there's the pipe that the homeowner is responsible for. And so from a municipal standpoint in Rhode Island, we have, we're doing a very good job with support from Department of Health, like the Rhode Island Infrastructure Bank, to receive funding that allows us to replace the water mains that are city or state owned. However, once we get to the property line, we don't have the right to access or remove that that becomes a homeowner's concern. You know, it's interesting, Dr. Chan, when you talk about the Flint water crisis, I'm reminded of a book I read several years ago called What the Eyes Don't See. Um, and it was really a, a great story from a public health physician who really just talked about what happened in Flint. And it really tells a story that I think is relatable. It was Dr. Mona Hanna Atishu who wrote that story. And I think it really underscores that we talked about social determinants of health as well. When you get into things about environmental justice, one of the things that story really brings out is something called environmental justice. Like why are certain populations prioritized to have their, their environment, their, quite frankly, their health care taken care of and others are not. Um, but I think that book, What the Eyes Don't See, was a great, a great story and really underscores the importance of how we take care of populations and what happens when we don't take care of populations, how it affects large populations. We're getting close to the end of our time together. I just want to wrap up with one last question here. And, and that is, you know, this is a Rhode Island um, city, Woonsocket, and, and people listen across the country, some outside the country. You know, generally your health department is the one who takes care of the problem and, and helps you with lead. So when you have to interact with a government agency, it's usually your health department. And there's always every health department knows what to do with lead because it's a very big public health issue. But what resources are available? And, you know, I guess Cindy and Bianca and Joe, you know, as we tie this up together, maybe Cindy, you could help us with this first. Are there grants available for certain cities? And then Bianca and Joe, any final thoughts on that? Sure, yes. Rhode Island Housing, you can consider to be statewide help. The Lead Safe Providence Program, you can consider being Providence focused. And I will defer one socket to Bianca and Joe. All of this information is on Redo's website in the Lead Program section. These programs are meant to be um, mingled with other federal funds. So for instance, if we have lead hazard reduction program funds or other municipalities have healthy home funds, then we can combine those funds with home repair funds or state weatherization funds. So we can address multiple health hazards in the home, whether it be slips and falls, um, asbestos, lead, you know, energy. So there, a lot of these programs are meant to build together and tie together. And most of them are forgivable grants and loans. So if they meet the income eligibility guidelines of one program, chances they'll meet them of all the programs. And then over time, we charge the, the percentage of the grant charges off. One of the issues that we have in Rhode Island, I'm just going to plug something that DOA and DOH has done a really good job of, is we have a landlord-tenant handbook. 
In Rhode Island, we have a high percentage of investment properties and rental units, especially in cities that define themselves as urban core cities. And so the landlord-tenant handbook tells the landlords what they legally have to do. And it also tells the tenant what their rights are. And a large chunk of it in Rhode Island is about lead hazard. Yeah, well, thank you, Bianca. And I want to thank Joe and I want to thank Cindy. It was great talking to you guys today. And I've learned a lot about lead today, which is great. You know, I feel like I've heard more of the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Dr. Chan, one of our traditions is to go for you for the final word. Before we go to the final word, any final thoughts on this topic of lead? Because it's an interesting topic. Tell me more. Tell me what you're thinking today. No, super important. I do want to thank our guests, uh, Cindy, Bianca, and Joseph. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, something that I learned a lot, uh, including the lead taste sweet. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to be eating paint chips, uh, but I think there's a lot of resources. So thank you all for sharing your expertise. Uh, it's good to know we're in safe hands, certainly the city of Woonsocket across the state, uh, that we have our, our fingers on the pulse, as they say. So thank you all for sharing your expertise and knowledge. But in closing, I do want to leave uh, folks with a moment of zen to consider throughout the rest of your day. And here it is, a famous quote by Abraham Lincoln. We can complain because our rose bushes have thorns or rejoice because our thorn bushes have roses. Thank you all and be well. I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, medical director with Island Department of Health. Have a good and keep up the great. <laughs>